Good morning, River City. My name is Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to worship with you this morning. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. Love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And and so, uh, like like uh, um, Steph was just saying, uh, get involved with a small group is a great way to do that. Great way to just get to know people, get in people's lives, and keep growing in your faith. And so we'd love to encourage you to check a small group out. Excited as well to continue our new series in the Gospel of John together. But if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time this morning, let me just briefly catch you up on where we're at and we'll continue on. We Like the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we've seen how John is kind of like a documentary about Jesus, about his life and ministry. But what we've seen from the beginning is that John's documentary about Jesus is very different than... And the other gospel writers' documentary accounts about him. The vast majority of what we read about in the Gospel of John uh, is unique to John's gospel. You don't find it anywhere else. He ignores all kinds of other things that the three other ones focus on, and he gives us a bunch of new kind of behind-the-scenes footage from the vault, right? Stuff that hasn't been seen by any, anyone yet. And the reason for those differences and John's uniqueness has a lot to do with uh, a lot to do with the time and the audience that he's writing to. You see, John writes the Gospel of John about twenty or thirty years after all three of the other gospel writers had written their gospel accounts, and that combined with the strong likelihood that John's in Ephesus while he writes it, uh, which had become kind of like the Christian hub of the world at the time. What that all that means is that is that the audience that John's writing to would almost certainly have had access access to and been familiar with the other three gospel writers' accounts about Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, it's likely that a significant portion of John's readers were first or second generation Christians, people whose parents had grown up, whose parents had become Christians, who were some of the first to follow Jesus and had taught them about him, people who had grown up on the stories of Jesus' life and ministry, who had begun to read about them in the accounts of Matthew and Mark and Luke over the years. And so they were familiar with Jesus and what he said and what he did. And the reality is, is that it's, the likelihood is that they had become too familiar with him. You see, what John's trying to do in this, his gospel documentary about Jesus is not just rehash everything for a fourth time. He's not just trying to give a new perspective on all the things that everybody else has already said. Instead, what he's trying to do is, is throughout this gospel, he's trying to help people see who Jesus really is. So what he wants to do is he wants to wake up a people who are from just kind of a groggy familiarity with Jesus to this spectacular, captivating, life-altering reality of who Jesus said that he was and who he proved himself to be. See, what John longs for is that a, a head-level knowledge about Jesus might increasingly become a heart-level faith in him that actually transforms people's lives. And he wants that to happen both now and for eternity. And last week, in, in the first half of chapter 2, we saw how one of the primary ways that John goes about doing that throughout his gospel documentary account about Jesus is by recounting a number of the miracles that Jesus did. But John, he doesn't call them miracles. In fact, he very deliberately refers to them as signs because in John's gospel, Jesus' miracles, they aren't just miraculous displays of power. Jesus' miracles like a billboard on the highway that tells you that gas is up ahead at the next exit. It's a sign that points to something beyond itself. 
It reveals something important about and unique about who he is and what he came to accomplish. And we saw last week Jesus using these huge jars used for ceremonial washing to transform water into wine at this wedding. We saw how Jesus is showing us not only that he's come to be the ultimate purifier, the, the true and better lamb of God whose blood cleanses us from sin, who removes it from us, but also that he's the all-providing bridegroom, that he abundantly supplies what we fail to bring. And that, he, and that he is glad for us to take credit for his provision. It's one of my, first half of John chapter 2, it's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. If you were gone last week, I'd encourage you to go back online, find that sermon. It was a good one. Just so good to think about Jesus in, the, in those realities. But as we continue our study in John's gospel this morning, we're going to see actually a very different side of Jesus, right? If, in the first half of chapter 2, Jesus is kind of like the ultimate party saver, the ultimate party rescuer, right? He provides the wine where everything had run out, and he kind of saves the party. And yet this morning, what we're going to see is that he, we're going to see him acting a lot more like the ultimate party crasher this morning and not in a good way, right? At the wedding, he brings life and joy. In our passage this morning, guarantee you, no one is smiling. See, the reality this morning we're going to see is that Jesus is angry. He is furious. As we study God's word this morning and examine this, this other side of Jesus that we often don't take a look at, what I want to show you, what we're going to see is that, is that Jesus' righteous anger, what it actually does is it shows us the things he loves the most. It's not just the things he's angry at. It shows us the things he loves the most. But also what we're going to see is, what, is who he came to be in order to bring those two loves together. Can't wait to show it to you. So good. Let's pray and we'll dive into it. So, God, thanks so much for your word and thanks so much for our time together in it this morning. And God, as we come to sit under the good authority of your word, we ask that you might speak to us through it, that you'd enable us to hear it rightly, to understand it rightly, and to respond to it rightly, God. Help us not just to inform our minds with new information, but God, would you captivate our hearts and our attention so that we see you as beautiful and captivating and uh, that we're and compelling. And so God, we want to worship you rightly. And for any of that to happen, we need you to show yourself to us. And so we just ask humbly you do that for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. You know, we're going to be in uh, this morning in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Follows immediately our passage after last week. It begins this way. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so he made a whip out of cores and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. All right, well, I, I don't know about you, but I think 
when I think about Jesus, I tend to have this picture. We tend to have this picture of him in our minds. It's kind of like this gentle shepherd kind of figure, right? He's the guy that encourages us towards love and kindness, right? Towards turning the other cheek, right? And he is all those things and says all those things. And yet the picture of Jesus that John presents us with this morning uh, makes him look uh, a whole lot more like this ferocious lion than a gentle lamb, does it not? He's not just frustrated, he is straight up furious. He is angry. So much so to the point that he's flipping over tables, he is cracking a homemade whip, he's just MacGyvered out of some random pieces of rope that are laying around in the, in the temple grounds, right? Like he is, he is seriously angry. He's not just upset, he's not just like, ah, oh, this is kind of annoying. Like he's furious about what's happening here. And the question that you have to ask about that is, is why? Right? We don't see the side of Jesus very often. So what is it that's happening here? What is, what is causing Jesus to be so angry? To answer that question, we've got to zoom out a little bit. We can get a little bit of context for a few of the details that we see in the, in the passage. And the first is this. You see, Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem, John tells us, around Passover time. And Passover is this hugely important religious holiday for the Jewish people. It commemorated God's uh, rescue of his people and freeing them out of slavery in Egypt. And part of celebrating Passover involved Jews from all over the world traveling back to Jerusalem uh, to offer sacrifices at the temples, part of celebrating Passover, similar to the way their ancestors had done when they sacrificed an animal and marked it to their doorposts with its blood and so escaped God's judgment in the 10th in the plague while they were in Egypt. And as you can imagine, uh, traveling a long distance by foot with your whole family in the ancient world was not easy. I mean, like, I consider it a small miracle when I can get my two children into our CRV for a weekend trip to the grandparents' house, right? Imagine, like, I'm not trying to bring a live farm animal with me, right? Like, that's, that, that's more than I can handle, right? And we're driving somewhere. And so instead of bringing sacrifices with them, people, they, they would buy them once they got to Jerusalem, right? And because they're coming from all over the place, right, they need to exchange their foreign currency for the local currency in order to be able to buy the sacrifices in order to help to celebrate Passover. And so buying animals to sacrifice and exchanging money to get the right currency, those were both necessary, like important things that needed to happen in order for people to be able to celebrate Passover. And the problem wasn't that these services that these people were providing were somehow evil or bad or wrong in some way. The, the problem we see is where they were happening. Instead of all this necessary stuff happening outside the city gates in the Kidron Valley where it once had, over time people just kind of figured like, man, it's just kind of easier, right, if we just do it in the temple, right? I mean, that's where everything's going anyways. We might as well just like shortcut that step and we'll just kind of cut out the middleman and just do it right there, right? That brings us to the other contextual detail we kind of need to zoom out to see. See, the, the temple courts, the temple in Jerusalem, it was the center of Jewish life in, in every way because the realize that the temple was the place where God was. Right, not just symbolically, but, but actually. We read in 1 Chronicles chapter 7 about how Solomon builds the first temple for God and God's glorious presence it like comes down in fire and fills the temple. God is there in a very real way. See, the temple was the place where heaven and earth came together, where people could meet with God and encounter His presence. 
Specifically, the temple courts, John mentions in verse 13, were kind of the outermost section of the temple grounds. It was a, otherwise known as the court of the Gentiles. And it was an area where people would come to prepare their hearts for worship and where people who were Gentiles, who, people who were non-Jewish, they were welcome to come and pray and seek God. And the reality was that instead of the temple being a place for focused prayer and worship and seeking God, it had become this noisy market, right? Animals are mooing and pooping everywhere, right? There's merchants who are clamoring for everybody's attention and their business in order to trade, exchange their money or buy their sacrifices, all necessary things that needed to happen. But the reality was it was just kind of this commotion, clamorous space, right? Instead of it being a place where people could prepare their hearts for worship and prepare their hearts to offer for their sacrifices to God. It was just this religious conveyor belt, right? Moving people along from one kind of empty religious ritual to the next, right? Imagine the picture, right? You'd, you'd walk into the temple square, you'd go to one table and trade your money, you'd go to the next table right next to it and get your sacrifice, you'd turn around, hand that to the priest, he'd slay the animal, put it on the altar, right? Say a few words, and then everyone's out the door onto their next thing. They're, everyone's just mechanically going through the motions. There, there's not a lot more you could do in an environment like that. And so what Jesus sees when he enters the temple grounds to celebrate Passover is this this noisy market instead of a place of worship. And he's furious about it. When you understand that context, what you see is that Jesus' anger, like I said in the beginning, it doesn't just show us what he's against. See, Jesus' anger, more importantly, it shows us what he's for. His anger doesn't just tell us about what he hates, it tells us about what he loves. You see, here's the reality, church, is that anger is actually just a form of love. Tim Keller, I think, just wisely puts it this way. He says, anger is love in motion to deal with a threat to someone or something we truly care about. Anger is love in motion to deal with a threat to someone or something we truly care about. He's really saying, in other words, Anger is the way that we respond when something that we love is endangered. Anger is the way we respond when something that we love is endangered. If you love something and you see the thing that you love being threatened, you get angry, right? It's right for me to be angry when people are driving 50 miles an hour down my little dead-end street, when my kids are playing in the front yard, because they're endangering someone that I love. That's not a bad thing, just like it wasn't bad, a bad thing for Jesus to be angry here. But, but the point that you need to see is that if you just look at the thing that's causing Jesus' anger, you're going to miss the point of the passage. You have to look past, you have to look into it, and you have to see what is being threatened here. What is it that Jesus really loves, that he's defending with his anger? Two things I think we see in the passage, both of them are wrapped up in verse 17. His disciples saw this happening and they remembered this messianic quote from Psalm 69. It says, zeal for your house will consume me. See, the temple was the house of God. All right? But it's important that that you understand Jesus isn't passionate about the physical building. Right? 
He's not like some, uh, just like some hugely intense historical preservationist society, right? That's like really concerned about the grout color on whatever is going on there. Right? That, that, that's, not the, that's not the zeal he has for his father's house, right? Instead, the zeal he has, like David does in Psalm 69, was for the purpose of God's house. You see, the, the temple was ultimately about God's desire and purpose to be present with his people. It was to make himself known and available to them and to the world. It's the place where people could come to worship God and encounter him, to meet him and know him. And those are the two things that Jesus loves and cares about the most. The Father's glory and people meeting the Father. That's what he's after. You read through all the gospel accounts, you think the thing that matters most to Jesus is God's glory and people meeting that's what the temple is for. That's what it's all about. That's what his passion is for. See, the reason he's so angry is because both of those things are being threatened. See, instead of his father's house being a place for thoughtful, full of thoughtful worshipers who could meet with God and glory in his presence, it was just this noisy marketplace full of just kind of a religious machine, full of people just going through the motions and missing the God that was behind all of it. Not only was everybody missing the whole reason and purpose for which the temple had built, but even more importantly, they were obstructing that reality for others who needed to see it most, right? The only place that Gentiles could come and to seek God was the very place that had drowned out any possibility of that happening. If you can't see what the temple is really for, then you'll never see what it was always meant to point to. See, and that brings us to the second thing I want to show you in our passage this morning. You see, the passage, we don't just see what Jesus loves in his anger. We also see in the passage what he came to do so that those two loves could be united. You see, the temple was ultimately, again, about God's desire and purpose to be present with, to dwell with his people, to make himself known and available to them. But even in Jesus' day, there was this necessary separation that was happening between God and humanity in the temple. You see, the whole, the whole temple was a sacred place, but at the very center of the temple, behind this huge veiled curtain, was a place called the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence resided specifically. Nobody could go back there besides the high priest, and he could only go back there once a year, holding a sacrifice, bringing a sacrifice with him. You see, the reality is that God's holiness, his complete and utter purity and goodness and transcendence is so radiant that sin in its presence is obliterated. So there's this necessary separation between God and his people because of sin. See, there's this separation between the two things that Jesus loves most, God's glory and people meeting him and knowing him, dwelling with him. See, but God had promised it wouldn't always be that way. In Ezekiel 43, through the prophet Ezekiel, God speaks about this coming day when his glory, his presence, would not just inhabit the holy of holies, but it would fill the whole temple. It's this picture where there will be no longer a veil separating God from man, but a day when God will truly dwell with his people without hindrance, without separation. What you see happening in the second half of the passage is that I was trying to show you in Jesus that day's finally come. 
to the religious leaders, they question Jesus in verse 18. They're demanding proof that he has the authority to kind of just totally upend their whole religious structure and system, right? And verse 19, Jesus answers them. He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. See, what's going on there is that the religious authorities, they're, they're asking Jesus, they're, they're telling him, basically they're saying, You're at, you act like you own this place, right? And Jesus' response to them is basically own it. I am the temple. It's not just my house. I am the very thing to which this place was always meant to point. I'm the ultimate reality to which this place was just a shadow, just an image. I've come to be the place where God dwells with his people perfectly, where they can encounter him and be in his presence without separation. John chapter 1, verse 14, right? John opens the book. He says, the word, the very God of the universe himself became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. That phrase literally in the original language is that he tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was the precursor to the temple. Right? He's saying that the very word of God has come into the world to be the presence of God, the means by which God dwells with his people. He has made known to them in which they know him and are in relationship with him. When Jesus, the Lamb of God, offered himself on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice, when the temple of his body was destroyed, what we read about in Matthew is that that veil, that, that curtain that had separated God's presence from his people because of their sin, it's ripped into, it's torn into from the top to the bottom. God had ripped down this dividing wall that had separated him from his people. See, Jesus is trying to help these people to see and for us to see. He is the true and better temple of God. He's the place and the means by which a sinful and distracted people might come unhindered into the very holy, pure presence of God. Revelation chapter 21, John describes this vision of God gives him of heaven. And he talks about this heavenly city and the throne of God. And in verse 22, he says it this way, I didn't see a temple in that city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. See, there's this picture throughout the Bible that God longs to dwell with his people. Now we see in Jesus that he has finally removed all of the barriers so that he might truly dwell with them, that they might know him and be known by him that there might be no more separation. Jesus says, I've come to be that. To unite the glory of God and people knowing him. I've come to be the temple, the place where those things meet. So the question as we think about the passage then is simply this, like, what do you do with that? Right? That just like some more information to understand? Like, what, how does that change our lives? How does that impact our lives? Well, John tells us in, cha in, in chapter 20 that he wrote all these things not just so that we believe more true things, but he says that he writes them so that in believing them, you and I would have life. That we have life in believing those things, right? And so the question again is, how does Jesus as the true and better temple, how does that impact our lives? What do we do with that? How do we apply that into our lives? I think two things, there's way more we could say about it, but two things I want to highlight for you this morning. The first is simply this, is that you and I, we have to trust Jesus to be our temple. For him to be the means by which you and I are made right with God, pure and holy, but more than that, the means by which God can dwell, not just near us, but in us and 
See, the problem is, is that you and I spend our lives trying to manufacture our own temples. We try to come up with all these means by which we can get near to God. All these means by which we can get close to Him, by which the, by we can get near to Him. And whether that's our own obedience or our performance, or whether that's giving money or time, or whether it's relying on religious rituals or systems or family connections or an endless amount of other things, whatever it is, what we're relying on is something other than Jesus to connect us with God, to be the means by which we can know and relate to Him rightly. And in all those other temples, the, the common denominator is that you bridge the gap. That you bring the sacrifice, that, that you, you are the one who tries to connect yourself with God and what Jesus has said over and over and over again. Now, like we saw last week, you, the sacrifices you bring are always insufficient. They are altogether insufficient. And yet Jesus says, my temple is different. Right? Because not only am I the temple, but I'm the sacrifice. I bridge the gap. I am the means by which a sinful people might dwell with a holy God. See, the only way to worship God rightly and to enjoy His presence both now and forever is through faith in Jesus. We might come to Him, the true and better temple. The means by which we come to know God and relate to Him. And the good news is that if we would come to him, he would always receive those who come to him with gentleness and grace. And yet the opposite is also true. See, for those who will not come to him, who won't see him as the true and better temple, but keep manufacturing their own, what you're going to get in the end is his ferocious anger. And I say that not to scare you, not to bring up some kind of fear, or worry in you, but I say that because that's the reality. Dane Ortland writes about it this way in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says it this way, If we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce that it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. And yet if we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will be his lamb-like tenderness for us. We will be enveloped in one or the other. To no one will Jesus be neutral. To no one will he be neutral. The reality is that for some of you, that reality is hard to bear. Because you have this vision in your mind that God is just a loving God. How could a God who loves be angry, but the reality is a God who never gets angry doesn't love? They are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they define each other. If a God who doesn't get angry, if you don't get angry when those the things you love are threatened, it reveals you don't actually love in the first place. You're just indifferent. And that brings us to the second way, I think, we should bring this truth about Jesus to bear in our lives. So we should imitate Jesus' zealous love for God's glory and for people meeting him, as well as his righteous anger towards anything that gets in the way of those things happening. And I think that happens on a, a couple of levels, but first on a, on a church-wide level, on a corporate level for us as a body of believers, 
We need to think about how our community as a whole does that. How we do that as we gather, as we worship God together. That's why, and for a number of reasons, that's why from this stage, we'll, like, that's why this stage will never ever get used as a political platform. That's why we will not be talking about political pundits, whether to praise one or demean another. That's why there's the only flag, the only banner that's ever going to hang in this church is the giant one you see on the wall in the front when you come in that says it's all about Jesus. Because anything else is going to be a distraction from him. Whether it's politics or whether whatever it might be, our goal is not to have a voice in everything. Our goal is to point to the one voice that matters. And everything else distracts from him. And the reality is, is that Jesus is very clear about how he feels about things that distract from his worship. As well, it's why we work hard on creating an environment in our church that tries to minimize distractions and encourages people to focus on God. If you ever read through the documents we've written for the worship team that help to outline and shape the way that we structure Sunday mornings here, what you'll find is a, a quote from John Piper that really sums up the approach that we take. He says it this way, he says, we will try to sing and play and preach in such a way that people's attention will not be diverted from the substance by shoddy ministry or excess finesse for undistracting excellence will let the truth and beauty of god shine through sound systems musicianship lighting heat ushering welcoming parking all those things meant to create an environment that is undistracting from the aim of thinking about god so our goal here at river city is not that people would walk away from a gathering on sunday and think wow that church is really impressive that they might think, wow, the God that they worship is altogether beautiful. That's what we're after. And the reality is, do we do that perfectly? No. And is there room for improvement? Absolutely. But that's our heart. That's what we long for. That's our desire. Lastly, what we want to do as a, as a church is we want to create an environment that is welcoming to people wherever they are at spiritually. We want people to know as they come into this church that whether you've been following Jesus for 50 years or you've been trying to figure him out for the last five minutes, you're welcome in this community. And there's a place for you here as you seek to figure out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And we want to create a community in all kinds of ways, whether that's the things that we say up front or the way that we invite people into our lives. We want to create a community in which people are welcome wherever you are at in following Jesus. The reality is, is that we can't just imitate Jesus' zealous love for God's glory and for people meeting him primarily as a community. We have to do that first in our own lives as individuals. You see, imitating Jesus looks like zealously driving out anything in our lives that would distract people from his glory or would obfuscate his desire to know and to be known by them. And so the question we've got to ask this morning is that is what is getting in the way of you being able to worship God and point others to him? What is getting in the way? What is like the, like the temple situation that was blurring the purpose of the temple and obfuscating that to those who were seeking God? What is it that's getting in the way of us worshiping Him and helping others to see Him? For some of us, it's misplaced priorities. It's so easy for our hearts and our lives to become like that outer temple court in Jerusalem that's just full of good, even necessary things, but things that have taken a wrong place in our lives. 
Things that have taken the place and the priority of worshiping God and meeting with Him. And whether that's time with our families or parenting our kids or work or hobbies or ministry or a million other good and necessary things that we've allowed to become the thing of utmost priority. And they're not just distracting us from worshiping God. They're leading those who watch our lives to be distracted from Him as well. And I want to encourage you to ask, is that happening in your own life? Do your priorities, the way you spend your time, the way you prioritize the things that you do, is that revealing that the worship of God is the thing that matters most or something else is? See, for some, it's a misplaced priorities. For others, it's that our worship has just become this mechanical going through the motions like the people coming to Passover were just kind of riding the religious conveyor belt through life. We're just doing the things and missing the whole point behind all of them. I just got to just be honest with you. People aren't dumb. It's easy to tell the difference between just religious ritualism and a vibrant relationship with the God of the universe. It's not like that's a hard difference to discern. It's a pretty obvious one in people's lives. But I just need to hear you that. I just need to tell you this. It's not just other people that see that. Your kids see that. My kids see that. I feel like God was just convicting me about that earlier this week. I don't know about you. Every night we spend time reading stories and you know, praying before bed with our kids. And I remember in the middle of my prayer realizing I didn't even know what I was talking about. I was just like, praying. I was like, what? I, I don't even, what am I saying? What, what, what are we? I don't even know what I'm doing here. I was just like realizing in that moment that I was just like literally just going through the motions. Yeah, we just read stories and then we pray and then we move on and that's all there is to it. And the reality is I wasn't even paying attention, let alone my kids. See, the truth is, I don't want my kids to get a picture that the idea that you can have an instant access to the king of the universe to be something that should be taken lightly and flippantly. What I want them to see is the inherent incredible dignity and honor and, and magnitude that you and I get to talk with the God of the universe in any moment. And that he always hears and listens to you. And I want them to see that. And me just going through the motions and just praying whatever random stuff I didn't even realize I was talking about, that's not helping them see the glory of God and the beauty of Jesus. That's blurring it for them. It's making God little and small when what he is is big and enormous and beautiful. It is so easy for us to just go through the motions and to miss God. And there's this invitation that we might ask God to help us get off the conveyor belt and into a vibrant relationship with Him. See, but it's not just misplaced priorities or mechanical going through the motion that distracts us and others from worshiping and encountering God. Sometimes the reality is that's just outright sin and rebellion. See, the truth is, is that all too often, you and I, we minimize and excuse sin in our lives, and we barely bat an eye at how it's blinding others to the goodness of Jesus. I say this in love towards you, 
Sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, someone you are not married to, is not pointing them towards Jesus. That's pulling them out. That's distracting them from him. Being consumed by your work, prioritizing it over and above your family and your spiritual life and calling it hard work, that's not actually honoring God. That's a lie. That's just worshiping whatever other thing your work is the venue to for you. Indulging in and celebrating explicit entertainment. That's not helping your family and your friends see Jesus as captivating and beautiful. That's distracting people from him. And the reality is is that so often we just don't even bat an eye at the things that pull us away from worshiping Jesus and distract others by exalting those things in our lives for others. And those are the very things that Jesus is looking at this morning and and he's furious about. Because what he longs for is the glory of God and people meeting him. And if we want to love and honor him, we must be zealous as he is. About driving out the things in our lives that would distract us and others from worshiping him. So the question as we close this morning is how do you do that? What's the way out? How do you rearrange all your misplaced priorities and your religious motions and, and your sin and idolatry in your life? How do, you, how do you go another direction? It all comes back to Jesus. And when you see that on the cross, his body, his temple being destroyed for you, absorbing God's wrath for all your misplaced priorities and all you, your routine heartless ritual rituals and all your outright sin and rebellion. And when you see him absorbing all of that on your behalf, what happens is you get captivated by him. And you are increasingly full of a love and a joy that comes from knowing him and all that he has done for you. And you see him as the means by which you get to not just know about God, but the means by which the God of the universe might dwell with and in you. And you see that as supremely valuable. You see it as the thing that matters more than anything else can matter. And what it produces in you is a fuel, a longing to live for him and to worship him. See, the only way you drive out messed up priorities and sin and idolatry and religious motions is by replacing it with a new worship of something altogether better. But Jesus, the true temple, That's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. Reminding ourselves that Jesus' body, his blood, the true and better temple were broken and shed for us so that you and I, as sinful people, might be able to dwell with a holy God. That we might not just know about him, but that we might know him truly and live with him both now and forever. So communion doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Faith in Jesus is the one thing that does that, nothing else. And so if you believed in Jesus to be the true and better temple, the means by which you get connected with God and get to dwell with him, the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and makes you holy so you can dwell with the holy God, or you do for the first time this morning, then I want to encourage you during our time of worship, go back and take communion. 
There's two tables, one in the back on the left and on the right. You can dip the bread in the juice as a reminder to you. Jesus' body and blood, broken and shed for you. What if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus? You're still figuring out who he is and what it means to follow him. And this whole idea of the temple is just real confusing still. I just want to encourage you. You are so welcome here. And you are welcome in our community. And you are welcome in this church. And we want to do whatever we can to remove distractions so that you might see Jesus and meet him and know him. And yet I want to encourage you to hold off on taking communion because God is not after religious rituals. And he's not after just religious conveyor belts and going through the motions. What he's after is a heart that sees him as the true and better temple and who trusts in him. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is and this church is, and we would love to help you get to know him. And as we sing and as we worship God and remember the gospel together in song this morning, I just want to close by pointing out one more thing to you in the passage. See, John closes these verses by saying that the disciples, after Jesus rose again from the dead, they remembered what he had said. And it says they believed the scriptures and they believed him. See, John is writing to a people who have a groggy familiarity with Jesus that is not changing them at all. And over and over again, he lays out these stories of people who have encountered the risen king of everything, whose belief in him is transforming their lives. And the whole point is that you and I might ask the question, have we believed like that? All the stories, they all invite you to ask, have you believed in that, Jesus? Or are you still trying to manufacture your own temple? Trying to bring your own sacrifice? Trying to find your own means to connect with God? Come to Him instead. Ask Him to show you where your own anger and love need to increasingly reflect Jesus's. Repent of the reality that we're so often angry at the wrong things and altogether fine with things we should be angry about. Ask him that he might empower you by his spirit to zealously drive out sin and distractions from your own life so that you might worship him rightly and point others to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful for you and for this picture we have of you as the lion. One whose righteous anger reveals your deep and abiding love for us and for, and for the fact that we might know your glory. So God, help us. God, to lay down, to run from our own manufactured temples, our own means by which we try to connect with you. And instead, help us to run to you, Jesus, the true and better temple. Destroyed for us, raised again, might have hope and newness of life. We need you for all of it, God. Help us to zealously love the things you love and hate the things you hate so we might worship you and point others to you, we pray. Amen.